Hello and welcome to the TBG Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with some of the most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you that there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry, and that some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here's the head of TBG Real Estate, Chris Papa. All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Papa, and today we have a very special guest, our first guest from Minnesota, Mr. Sam Eaton. Sam is the Director of Investor Relations at Timberland Partners. How are you, Sam? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? Awesome. And now you're at Timberland Partners, um, based out of uh, Minneapolis. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Timberland? Sure. Uh, Timberland is a family-owned and operated company. Uh, it was founded back in 1992 by Bob Franson, uh, still owned by the Franson family. Bob was a uh, apartment broker for CBRE back in the day and got into, he was you know, on the transaction side, but wanted to be a principal and help start kind of building his own wealth. So he and a few of his friends, kind of early partners, went in and there was four guys and they bought a uh, 46-unit apartment complex out of foreclosure here in Minneapolis. And that was kind of the start of the company. And it's grown kind of organically since then. We've continued to bring in new partners. Uh, we've got a management company now. And today we uh, own and operate just under 17,000 units across the central U.S. and starting to focus more on the southeast portion. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. Um, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of units. Yeah, slow and steady. I think uh, you know the last the last few years have been big for us. The company transitioned back in 2007, 2008 to a multi-asset fund model and got away from the kind of single asset syndication. And we, you know, the, the capital continued to come in. Our investors continue to uh, express interest in our business model, and so that's that's grown kind of from a referral base, friends and family type raise. We're all uh, non-institutional equity in the in the deals. But that continued interest has allowed us to continue to expand the portfolio, enter some new markets. But it's honestly a fairly simple business model, and we just scaled it over time. Now, I know a lot of uh, shot or people listening, or people have like, yeah. I guess you start out with like kind of the single entity uh, raise, right? And then like, what when what's the point where people go to the fund model? I know. I have a lot of friends and and clients and and just people I know in the industry who are like trying to get there. Like, what what do you think? What takes it? Why does one company get there? Like, what what's the timing for that? Yeah, I mean, great question. I think it's gonna obviously it's gonna be different for different people. They're gonna have different reasons for wanting to, and I can explain why why our company did make that transition. Um, one, obviously, the fund gives some additional diversification. So even though we're a multifamily focused shop, that's all we own is multifamily. Um, and we're generally class B value add players. So in that sense, it's fairly focused and there's not really diversification across the real estate spectrum, mm. but by owning different assets with slightly different strategies, um, like how aggressive the kind of value add play is. Um, and then in the different geographic markets, you do get some diversification, diversification. So there's, there's value in going a fund model for that reason. So if that's what you're looking for, that maybe one, one reason people start to move down that track. But for us, the, the biggest deal was that the investor base got so big that the equity requirement on a single deal, and we're, we use debt on these, they're conservative leverage, but we're around 60 to 70% leverage, depending on the particular deal. Um, and the, the equity requirement just wasn't that big. So then mm -hmm. we're trying to prioritize getting certain investors back in 
you know, and doing this rotating list and it just got to be too big of an issue. So we switched over to, to a fund model and that basically allows anybody who wants to get in um, and we and we phase these capital calls and but that way everybody gets into the deal and they get a little bit of a uh, added diversification. Yeah. And then is it hard to go that route? I mean, I know do you, do you have to have set in, like if you're a company that's trying to go the fund model, what do you have to do to get there? Um, I don't I mean, I don't think it's in any way materially different from doing a single asset syndication. And we still do that if there's a, a particular property that for whatever reason doesn't match the, the business strategy of what we've defined for the fund, we will still do those. And more, more often than not, they fit just kind of in between when we've got funds going. So, I mean, from seeing both, I don't think they're that significantly different. As far as filing, um, we have done a, you file under a different uh, section of the SEC code and that allows us to market the, the offering more broadly. And so there's kind of restrictions about who you can bring in and how you market it, uh, whether they're accredited or not, have to, whether they self-verify or whether you go through a third-party verification source. So that adds a little bit of complexity, but again, it's, you can pick and choose and do either one of those, whether it was a single asset or a fund, they're not that different. Gotcha. And then have you guys gone the route of like getting like institutional institutions involved? We're not. Um, interesting question in timing. We're, we're kind of at that stage where it's it's definitely getting more difficult to fill our continuing need to grow equity, but not. we don't want to transition over to institutions just because, one, we're, we don't want to cede control of decision-making for the, the particular business entity that's going to own the properties. Um, but also, we're, we're just kind of loyal to the investor base that has come with us, many of them for 10, 20, 25 years um, that have been investing with us. And they probably have in many cases, a significant portion of their personal net worth tied up in investment entities with Timberland Partners. And we don't want to sell out and then transition that over to somebody else and then, uh, you know, never call on their their equity again to, to invest with us. So it's, wow, I get it. Kind yeah. of call it Midwest values, but that's a, a belief of our founder. And I think it's, it's a pretty cool thing that we do. I do too. Yeah, that's great. And so now what are you, uh, so you're buying, you said class B non-core markets, right? It's kind of just like yeah, Midwest yeah, stuff. I mean, where, like what's, what's kind of the, it's, you said value add? It's value add. And like you said, I mean, it's not what some people would call core, the tier one markets, gateway cities, whatever you want to call those. That's, that's stuff that we stay away from. I think that in general, at least historically has attracted more institu institutional capital and some of the bigger players, um, and, and you get into more competitive bidding processes and that uh, erodes returns. So we found more success staying in secondary and tertiary markets, generally in the middle part of the country, following those demographic trends as people are uh, you know, moving more to the, to the Southeast. So really successful markets for us recently have been uh, St. Louis and Nashville markets, mm. but we're in 15 different states, uh, we, it, but we continue to kind of look more to the Southeast right now. But like you said, value add, you're looking to, in our, in our case, add, add some, new improvement of the property, a kind of a strategic capital improvement, whether it's exterior paint, something on the landscaping, adding a new kind of common amenity or fixing something up, or you're doing interior unit renovations. Um, and then on top of that, we also add some value because we have this in-house management and we don't, we don't third party uh, manage yeah. for anybody else, but one that helps us kind of on the underwriting front to make sure that we know what operating expenses are going to look like on the, on the front end going into a deal. We can do that with a little bit more confidence than somebody who may be partnering with a new operator in a market they've never been in. Yeah. So we kind of have a better grasp of that going in. 
And then just from operating at scale, there's some efficiencies that we get um, that we can bring in that smaller operators may not have. Do you know what you guys look for in a market to invest in? You said now you're looking in the southeast. Is there certain like particular like, characteristics in a market? Yeah, I mean, we're looking for growing population or uh, population growth. Like most people will stay away in general from smaller markets that are maybe tied to a singular employer. So we're looking for a diverse employment base. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't think it's anything super unique. Some barriers to entry. Um, I don't know. That's that's about it. And now you're the direct, you're the director of investor relations. Um, but I would like to, can we, I'd like to go through your background a little bit. Did you, did you grow up in Minnesota? I did, uh, born in Texas actually, but I was, uh, yeah, raised in Minnesota. This is, this has been home base for me. Went to that, college in Wisconsin. Um, Wisconsin, Wisconsin's part of Minnesota, right? Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you, did you grow up wanting to be in real estate? I mean, so you went, you grew up, uh, I see just looking through your, your background here that you were in the, in the Marines, right? I was, um, my, I have, uh, my father was in real estate. He was in the services side. He worked for Christian Wakefield for many years. Gotcha. And so I was aware of real estate probably more than most younger people are as they just kind of drive about and don't think about, you know, types of buildings and, and what, uh, the users may be in, in, in general, the real estate market. So I was aware of it. And kind of, as I got a little bit older, I thought this is an interesting business and something that I may want to get into one day, but I didn't want to go straight into it. Mm. So I had a, an interest in foreign policy when I was in college and I kind of followed that itch for a while and studied actually Middle Eastern studies and uh, international studies. And so I joined the Marine Corps after college and served as an infantry officer for four years, uh, not and knowing that I didn't want to make it a career, but it's something that was uh, important to me to serve the country and just kind of uh, you know, be part of that world for a little while. So I did that for four years and then came back to Minneapolis. That's, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, uh, so you were in the, you were in the Marines. Did you have an idea what you wanted to do? I mean, what did you just do after that? Or like, you know, did, did, did that skill set translate into what you learned there into, into commercial real estate? Did, was that something you had in mind or just like, you were like, I'll figure that out later. Um, I think there's a soft skill set that transitions uh, or helps helps in a transition to a professional role in uh, in the private sector. And that's really just learning to deal with people, be a professional and uh, communication and kind of just taking responsibility for, uh, you know, for your decisions and taking responsibility for your life. There's uh, the, the leadership that's pushed down to lower levels in the military to young people. I found from coming back to the private sector that that's hard to replicate. And it's, it was just a phenomenal experience for me. So I'm, I'm grateful for getting the chance to go through it. And I honestly, I'd recommend it to, to most people if they ever got the chance or were considering it. But as far as what I wanted to do when I got out and how I thought about that transition, um, that was not as clear of a picture. I knew I was interested in real estate, um, but I was also really interested in finance and kind of investing, personal investing, but just um, you know, how the investment world, the capital markets uh, function. And so I was thinking about how I wanted uh, put those together and kind of what that might look like. My okay. first uh, first internship um, exposed me to the uh, transaction side, but I was thinking about and in in brokerage, but I was interested in on the principal side of the business as well, and that kind of introduced me to development. So that was where I did my internship during my MBA when I came back to Minneapolis uh, at Ryan Companies here in town, 
awesome, awesome company to work for and a, a great first exposure to the development side. So that was the first real foray into real estate. And I was there for uh, interning for like seven months. And then uh, through some networking, made a connection with a small kind of boutique multifamily developer, also on the kind of the west side of Minneapolis. And then I started there after, after the MBA. And my role there was on the new acquisitions, new development underwriting. So I was kind of getting to combine financial analysis, but definitely in the real estate space. And that just uh, definitely sparked my interest. And in it was something I really enjoyed doing. And part of my, my role there was on the investor relations team where we had a small group of equity investors and I was responsible for our reporting to them. So that helped. Yeah, why, don't you, why don't we take a step back? I, we, I don't think, I think you're the first person on this, on this podcast that's actually been in investor relations specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, I know I work on a lot of investor relations jobs, quote unquote, for my clients. Um, but I don't think many people actually know exactly what investor relations is. Can you, can you just clarify what your job is and what you do? Yeah. Um, I mean, at, at a big picture, you're answering questions for your investors and taking care of their, their reporting needs as they've made these private investments in your company, in your investment vehicles. And so the, the biggest things for us are getting out our quarterly and annual reports to them, showing them how the investments performed, and then making sure they're getting all the appropriate tax documents at that time of year, their K-1s. So that's kind of the ongoing responsibilities. But upfront, our team also helps with putting the kind of legal package together. So we help write the, you know, the marketing materials, the offering memorandum, and then the private placement memorandum, working with our uh, securities attorneys. So we have to craft that language, make sure that we're filing all the right stuff and then get those documents and handle the, the signatures back and forth to get investors subscribed in our actual entities and they, they become a, a legal owner of the entities. So that's that's the front end work. So as a, as an investor myself in real estate deals, like I've I've worked with some, you know, I don't I don't work with big institutions. I don't invest with big institutions, just mm -hmm. smaller, smaller shops. Yeah. So I've seen it kind of both ways where there's just like, there's no investor reporting at all, which is basically awful. Yeah. It's um, frustrating. <laughs> it's You're like, where the hell is my money? Where, yeah. where, where's my money? Why, you know, why you promised me this and now it's, I haven't heard from you mm -hmm. and everything. And then there's like the ones that are, and they may not be, they're not doing anything bad. They're just not good at reporting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to get your money, but they're just not good at reporting. So there's a lot of unknown and when that's going to happen or regular communication. And then I have other ones where it's just like they get back, you know, they have like a monthly email they send out or something um, to their investors or, or something. Along. And just, just that sort of communication, even if it's just brief, is just such a, it makes me want to invest with them again, as opposed to like the other way i don't i would never want to invest with a, like a shop like that that doesn't do good reporting so um did, yeah did i think that's that's part of what people that our investor base has uh kind of guided us over the years by asking questions in between these reporting periods and that's why i think they're attracted and keep coming back to us is that they can get a hold of somebody on our team and find out the details on the deal that they're in um, but the questions that they ask have kind of helped shape the information that we include in those quarterly reports so our goal is to put this package together. That's kind of a an overview snapshot of their investment, how the how the entity's performing, and then provide all the important financial kind of statements and, and the balance sheet, and let them get a full picture. Say this is how my my deal's doing, and that, then that minimizes how much they're trying to reach out to us in between the quarterly uh, updates. If that makes sense. Yeah. Now, 
it's a lot. Are you involved in the fundraising too? Do you like sometimes that investor relations people are kind of like doing some like, like going on like fundraising calls and stuff like that? Yeah, um, absolutely. So that what I was talking about on their kind of responsibilities to our investors, that's a, a big portion of my role, um, especially at the quarterly ends when those reports are coming out and on the front end of setting up the investment. But my, my main role kind of day to day is trying to build awareness for our company, our platform, our investment, and then finding those new equity investors. So I'm reaching out to wealth management companies, family offices, and then when when appropriate, other kind of high net worth individuals who would be potentially potentially interested in uh, coming into deals with us. I've I've seen some larger institutional shops are trying to get more into that uh, RIA, you know, wealth, private wealth management world. Is that seem? Have you seen that like competition from like some of these bigger shops? Like it was set up. I know Blackstone have like BREIT and like there's like yeah. Have you seen competition I, from those guys? I was just going to reference the Blackstone one too. That's the that's the one I've uh, read most read about most recently. Um, I've heard about it. As far as hearing about competition from the actual shops that I've talked to, I haven't heard them bring it up. It's been more of a challenge just kind of to create or do the educational piece to get them comfortable with our offering. Because if you when, until you know us, you know we're no different than the. the you know, first time operator putting their first apartment deal together and they're saying, Hey, I would yeah. invest in value add multifamily real estate, come give me some money. And, you know, we're worlds apart from them, just, uh, you know, the experience alone, but it's hard to get people comfortable with that idea. And, uh, you know, I think it's, they, they feel more comfortable doing what their peers are doing and investing in, in public equities and, and fixed income, which I, I totally get. So it's, it's the challenge of building the personal relationship with them and getting them comfortable with what we do and, and, and the education. And how do you do that? I mean, does it just take a lot of phone calls, a lot of meetings, a lot of dinners? Yeah, I mean, that's the goal is as much as they can get comfortable with you and get in front of them. Um, we we love the in-person meetings when those when we get to that stage, they usually go well for us and you can kind of see what we're what our platform is. But uh, we use kind of a multi uh, multi strategy uh, way to get in front of them and, and do that education. So we've got some webinars that we put out. We've revamped our website. And this is really the first time. <clears throat> So we, we launched this fund back in December. It's our largest to date. It's a, a targeting $100 million. So we filed under this different section of the code, which allows us to market it more broadly. So that's kind of, kind of a backstory for this. But um, yeah, it's it's using the website. It's it's creating mailers, anything anything that we can uh, create some credibility to get in front of them and say, this is we're different. We've been around a long time. We've got some scale and, uh, and a track record to prove it. Now, do you were you brought in to help set this up or did they have people doing this before? I'm not on the team by myself. Um, I'm the third, I was the fourth member of our uh, investor relations team, but I, I kind of lead the effort to build those new relationships with our equity partners. The, the rest of our investor relations team is really um, spearheading the, the upfront effort of getting the legal fund established and then doing the, the quarterly reporting and kind of answering those day-to-day -day questions from our investors. So I, I help out with that as necessary, but, uh, my my focus is definitely more on the the new equity relationships. That sounds sounds kind of fun. I mean, you got to you go out and like call on people, and I mean, you yeah. It's, how, it's how, how do you find out where to where to where to target it? Where do you get your leads? Good question. I mean, there's there's definitely no playbook on how to do this. Mm -hmm. You don't uh, sit down at the desk and say just oh, here's the list of people to start calling. It's uh it's research on the shops and and in general. You can find the, the multifamily offices or the independent wealth management shops that are one not part of a larger umbrella program because if 
you know, call it the Ameriprise of the world there to get them to underwrite us and make their platform available to all their clients, the scale that we would be offering probably wouldn't make sense to them. So mm-hmm. we, in general, I look for smaller shops who have just a, you know, a limited number of clients, um, but then also that they offer a super diverse range of services to them, which would indicate that they probably have more of the higher net worth or ultra high net worth clients rather than um, non-accredited uh, investor clients. Obviously an important base, but if we're targeting, we can only accept accredited investors. That's the you know profile of people that we need to find. Oh, so it's only accredited. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So if you're, if I was an accredited investor, like how mm-hmm. would I invest with you? Could I just call you up or do I have to go through a certain channels or what, what, how does that work? You could call us up. Um, you can find us on the website as well. Uh, we have a DocuSign subscription subscription package. You could go through that. But again, it's you, you would only come in if we actually have a vehicle out for investment. So right now our f- uh, fund, Fund 7, is open um, and probably will be through 2020. We launched it back in December of 2019. But we don't always have something open for investment. So we that's why we build this base um, of investors. We come in when we've got deals open. And then there's a, you know, a period where we're just running the properties and looking for the next set. And then we'll open another fund back up and then go again. Gotcha. And so... I mean, how did someone who was, you know, not in, not, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are not in, I mean, maybe they're, maybe they're in the Marines, maybe they're in whatever, but they're not in real estate and you made that transition. Like how did, wh- what did it take? I mean, how did you get into it? Did you, was it a lot of networking? Was it like, I mean, you're obviously a smart guy, pretty personal guy, but what, what steps did you take to get to where you are? Yeah. I mean, the, the networking's huge. That can't be overstated and uh, it's, done done a lot for me and helped build build my network just in minneapolis but um you know i think there's a, a lot of value and when you come to a new city you're trying to transition just call people start looking up which companies are the big players um, and then reach out to people in any way that you've got, got a first connection with and then until you're actually asking something of them it's a lot easier to get that first meeting and just you know pick their brain about what they did um, and any, any advice they'd give you that was really helpful for me to build connections with a lot of the real estate companies in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, besides that, then just read, read publications, read the news, stay on top of, uh, the latest trends in, in your market. Um, and then the, one of the big tools for me to help do the transition was cause I wasn't going to be sourcing deals right away. That's, you know, you kind of need, need that established network, but, uh, to work on the financial underwriting side. So I kind of kind of taught myself modeling or the real estate modeling, but uh, getting some exposure to that first in development at Ryan companies, but then just taking classes online, talking to other people, figuring out how other people are underwriting deals. Uh, that was a skill set that I could, I could teach myself and then add value somewhere when I started a new company. So you took some initiative before you had a job. You're like, I think I need to learn financial modeling. So I'll just figure out a way to, you know, I'll sign up for one of these classes online or something. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I had, I had done a little bit, but I continued to learn while I was at that, that first job at the boutique, the boutique developer. Um, that was modeling is awesome. Cause it's one way, obviously it adds value to the firm. If you're a little bit more um, savvy on being able to help them understand the deal they're considering, but learning modeling is great because it helps you to really understand how a deal works and how value is created and where the money is going to come back. Cause if you don't, um, you can, you can't model something that you don't understand. Yeah. And, you know, so um, working through the nuts and bolts of like when money's going to come in, when it's going to come out and thinking about how that works was super valuable to me. What other skill sets are important or uh, 
for your for your job and just your advancement through your career besides modeling modeling i mean the the most important thing is still just being able to communicate clearly both um just getting comfortable speaking with new people but creating presentations that are clear uh, we we love to have investors come into our uh, our office or get to go to their space and then kind of pitch ourselves our company our offering and being able to do that in a clear concise way that's been you know, there's nothing more important than that. What's the, I mean, what's the Minneapolis real estate scene like market? Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm used to, I lived in New York and San Francisco. Um, is it like you were, is there a lot of companies there? Is it like, what's, what's kind of the real estate job market? Like, I don't, I'm not that familiar with it. Yeah. There's, I don't think there's a, a huge number of real estate investment shops in Minneapolis. That's not something that we would say we were known for. There are a number of large developers that are based in Minneapolis. Um, Ryan, obviously being one of them, but United Properties, Opus, uh, Mortensen based here as well. And then there's on top of that, a bunch of smaller firms and uh, larger service providers. So a lot of, you know, the, the brokerage shops um, and stuff like that. I guess there's small, some smaller investment groups, but in general, that's, I think, the biggest players to those uh, large developers and uh, general contractors. I mean, I've heard it's a great city. I've uh, People have told me I'd love it if I went there. So maybe it's not, maybe, yeah. maybe in the summertime, but not in the winter. But um, Yeah. If you're going to visit, don't do your first one in the winter. <laughs> yeah. Is there a lot of, um, like, I've heard, I remember hearing there's like tech moving in there. There's a lot of like stuff like that, like younger, younger millennials and stuff like, is that true? Yeah, I think there's there's been good population growth. The tech scene is growing for sure. Uh, some software development companies down in uh, in the downtown area. The other big thing that we're known for is the healthcare scene. So we've got uh, United Health Group and uh, a number of med device companies in town. That's kind of a, a really unique hub. And then of course the the Mayo Clinic, one of the largest hospital in the world, is down in Rochester, not too far away. So the, the medical scene is big as well. And what, um, I mean, what's, what are the plans for Timberland? You guys just keep getting bigger and bigger or are there any, do you have like a five-year projection in that? In that or getting, oh, you said getting into the Southeast a little more. Is that, um, is that yeah, we, the next goal? We, we had a goal for number of units to add in 2020, but that was oh, yeah. <laughs> pre-COVID. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're reevaluating how we can tweak the strategy a little bit and figure out where we can still add value, especially during this period of, uh, price discovery when when uh, buyers are not maybe yet willing to accept where the where the new price might fall out and everybody's trying to find that that sweet spot. So our I think we're readjusting our unit goal growth, but um, I mean in general we're still targeting a twelve percent growth for the company. So we're looking to you know get bigger. We'll launch new funds. We'll continue to add units um, and then enter some new markets as they make sense to us. Did you guys have a rush? Of, I mean I when COVID first broke out. I called, you know, I was, I wasn't freaking out, but I was calling my the people I invested with, like what's going on and what's happening type of thing. I mean, was there a rush to like get information from you guys, from your investors? Yeah, for sure. I think we were on the front end of putting out information to kind of keep people a little bit more comfortable. And one of the beautiful things about real estate and private real estate is that it's not subject to the same swings um, as people are kind of like emotionally coming in and out of the public markets. And so the, the value is a little bit more stable. So we've had, um, you know, Q1 was our best quarter in the company's financial history. So, yeah. uh, you know, follow that up, our April and uh, May collections were, were were just slightly under where they've been historically. So they're still super strong months for us. 
Mm. So we just suspended Q1 distributions and are still kind of making decision on where Q2 is going to fall out. Just so we're building a little bit of cash reserves to get us through the future. Um, but I think people wanted to know that they want to know how my investments doing in the meantime. And so it was talking them through and getting them comfortable with, you know, in general, things are still okay. And, uh, you know, it's just figuring out uh, how much safety net you need to build going into the, into the next few months. What are you guys thinking about new investments? Are you guys uh, kind of hesitating or trying to see how it's going to play out or push things out? And you know, if got anything on, under contract, maybe wait a couple months and, no, we're, we're still active, uh, just being a little bit more cautious. I think it's paying attention and realizing that you can't, it, I mean, it wouldn't be responsible to underwrite the same level of rent growth that we've, we've had and that we would have done back in January or February to say, you know, what's five, 10 years out, I'm going to achieve this level of rent growth. That's probably not smart anymore. So we have to be a little bit more conservative on that end. And if, if you're not projecting that growth, where else are you going to create the value? So in general, you just have to come in at a lower price. And so that's the price discovery I was talking about. And now we're just figuring out how else can we capture some value? So we're looking at um, taking out a little bit more lease up risk. If there's an opportunity to buy at a, a price that would justify, you know, under underwriting that limited rent growth. So that's one thing we're looking at, uh, you know, paying a little bit more attention to replacement cost and some other strategies like that. Yeah. Good. That sounds, that sounds so smart. We do, yeah, we do, <laughs> sorry. You asked about uh, stuff under contract. We do have um, one deal under contract. The fund's still active and we've got uh, LOIs out on other properties. So we're, we're still looking. We're just being a little bit more, a little bit more cautious. Good. I mean, that's great. I mean, I've, I've, yeah, I'm working with some other folks that are same thing, right? They're still looking they're a little bit, being a little more cautious. They're actually getting some better deals right now from, from the sellers. Yeah. Renego- renegotiating. Yeah, I mean, loans come due. People need to refinance, get out of their deals. There's there's always going to be stuff on the market. You just got to know what you want, know what your business plan is, and and uh, be cautious when it's uh, appropriate, but be ready to act when when you can too. Awesome. Well, Sam, are you ready for the hot seat? Yeah, let's do it. The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services, which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, k-k-r-e-s-e-t.com. Let's do the hot seat, right? These are the uh, the five questions that I ask or try to ask all my guests. Uh, question number one, any books that you recommend, whether real estate or not real, real estate related? Hmm. Yeah, I've got uh, three books that I would tell you that are that are have been awesome for me and I'd recommend. The first one is Other People's Money by Charles Bagley. It's my favorite real estate book. Uh, it was given to me by an investment sales broker about the, the largest real estate deal ever that fell apart in New York um, back in 2006. And a great story about kind of how complex deals are, but at the same time, 
how simple a couple like key assumptions are in making <laughs> a deal make sense. And uh, you know, getting that right is, is everything, but also obviously the, the value of using other people's money and how that can limit the exposure to the GP. So that was a really cool book. Um, the other one would be Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I don't know if anybody's oh, yeah. brought that up. I, I, yeah, right. yeah. I read that uh, one. Man, what an awesome story about entrepreneurship and just kind of, you know, giving some perspective to what it takes to, to put a company together before it's popular and everybody knows about it and says like, oh, God, I want to be that guy and to you know get a glimpse of what they go through on the front end. I, I just thought that was so cool. So other people's money is the first one and Shoe Dog is the second one. Shoe Dog I read. I love that one. Yeah. I, I got to check out, I gotta check out the first one. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You have three. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Last one. Never, never eat alone by Keith Ferrazzi. You've heard of that one. Uh, great. I've heard of it, but I've never, I never read it. Yeah. I mean, you don't need to like apply every one of his lessons in there, but it's, it, the book's kind of about the value of networking and just how important that is to build a personal brand. Um, something that I feel, I feel like you're on top of right now, but um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of great ideas that you can take out of that and kind of figure out how they would apply to your life. But um, if you're not thinking about how to build your own personal brand and how to, uh, you know, create relationships with people in today's age, uh, then I think you're missing out. So his, his book was refreshing a reminder of that. I'm going to look, I'm going to look that one up. I definitely, yeah. I love the, uh, yeah, I love building a brand. Yeah. Um, how about podcast recommendations? Podcasts. Um, I, again, I'm sure somebody else has mentioned this on, on your show, but uh, how I built this is a favorite of mine. Um, yeah, some, some great, great stories there. I love hearing about kind of what people go through on, on the front end of building building an awesome company. So interested in entrepreneurship, I, I always thought that was really cool. Um, I also have a pretty short commute normally to work. So I, I like uh, some of the shorter ones where I can digest it quickly. But uh, Wall Street Journal's What's News is kind of a great snapshot of what's happening in the world every day. So I like that one. Yeah, how I built this, I, I've, I've, yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. Um, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self. Hmm. Well, we've touched on this a little bit already in the show, but I think this the the value of networking and building real relationships with people and not networking, not just uh, collecting business cards, but trying to create, uh, create a network of friends and colleagues, somebody that you can ask for advice early on in your career before you really need something from them. Uh, when you can sit down and just pick their brain about what they've done and um, you know, advice they'd share with you and then ask them for other people that you should connect with. That's, uh, that's helped me out in my career more than, more than a degree, more than refining a, a resume or cover letter. It's like getting somebody who will vouch for you or make another introduction on your behalf. Yeah. That's, that's everything. So I thought that was, uh, important to me early on. I'd recommend anybody else think about that. And the other thing is it would just be to read more books. I think, uh, I was, a I liked reading, but I've really gotten into it more recently. And it's, uh, I mean, there's no shortage of value you can create of expanding your horizons, your knowledge base, and just kind of getting a new perspective on the world. I agree. I have so many freaking books. It's like, I, sometimes I feel overwhelmed. Yeah. It's not like a books to be read, read. Collect, collect them more faster than you can get through them, but uh, it is a good goal. Um, what do you like to do outside of work? What keeps you balanced? Um, uh, I've always been into exercising. I think that's part of it got reinforced in the Marine Corps, but I, I love working out and, uh, trying different, different strategies, but whether it's running or powerlifting, CrossFit, whatever it is, it's, that's always been a passion of mine. Um, getting out in the city just with friends and family. We've got, uh, we've got a new baby girl in the house. So this is, uh, uh keeping us really busy, but yeah, thank you. 
but just love getting out, uh, seeing the brew, the brew pub scene in Minneapolis is a, a really fun thing. Again, don't come in the winter, but if you can get outside in the summer and go check those out, it's a lot of fun. Uh, love doing that. And then my wife and I are big travelers. If we can ever get out of the city, see a new, see a new place. That's uh, always something we really enjoy. Hopefully we can try our traveling again soon. I know. Can't wait. What do you look for in, in hiring people? Um, on our team, I think that one of the most important things is being able to communicate with confidence and professionalism because you're going to inevitably be in front of our investors and you know, making them feel comfortable with their investments and being able to talk through our process and everything. That's, that's important. Um, but beyond that, uh, just having a, a drive or passion about the business, there's nobody's going to know everything about a job or all their responsibility when they come in. But if you're, if you're passionate about learning, there's, there's nothing you can't figure out in the business. So have confidence, you know, be a, be a go-getter and just, uh, you know, be ready to learn, learn the next step. It's those two things will take you a long way. Awesome, man. Yeah. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story with us. Thanks for your, your service in the Marines. And uh, it's been great getting to know you a little better. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. Please visit us online at tbg-realestate.com or on Instagram at tbg.realestate. Until next time, have a great week.